Well, we're back in First Peter, continuing our series through this uh, amazing epistle that seems to be very relevant to us, it seems to me anyway. Now, you might recall that the apostle's purpose was to describe what the true grace of God is and then to encourage us to stand firm in it. So we're now in the part of the book that applies that theological definition, conversations about identity in Christ. Now it applies it to life and how we are to live it out in practice. Remember that Peter is particularly concerned with how we are to interact with a culture that is often hostile or at best indifferent to the gospel. So because the end of our passage, as you heard it read, and if you were paying attention, you know this, it's arguably the most difficult text in the New Testament. So if you're new to Chatham this morning, welcome. We're going to handle the most difficult text in the New Testament. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take time to work through the logical flow of the whole passage. I typically don't do it. I think Spurgeon did it every time, so maybe I should as well, but I'll do it today. We'll work through the passage and see the logical flow of it, because that will help us understand what particular verses mean. And then I'll draw out fairly briefly five applications or five practical observations for us to, to take away. So you made me work this week, I just have to tell you. This, this is a difficult text. It's difficult to understand, but I'm going to do my best to explain it. I'm not going to give you all the opinions on it. I'll just give you the right one, okay? <laughs> if you want to know the other options, you can welcome to pick up a, a study Bible or commentary. Of course, I'm joking. There's lots of disagreements among godly people on some of these verses. So, okay. So let's open your Bibles, and we'll just, we'll just work through it, okay? Beginning in verse 8. Now, in verse 8, Peter describes the kind of attitudes that should prevail in the Christian community, in the church. So he calls on us to be like-minded, understanding, loving, compassionate, and humble in our relationships with one another. He's using the kind of uh, language that people of the time used of their family obligations, of their kinship obligations. So he's using the language that you would typically come across at when you're talking about family and households. And he takes that and he uses it for the church, which is a spiritual household, where we are to be careful to maintain close familial relationships. Now, this is important. He just finished talking about family and households, and now he's applying that to the church. And he says, this is how you are to treat one another in the church, with compassion and understanding and unity of mind and, and love and humility. Now, in verse 9, he now goes back to his great theme of encouraging believers to relate to the world properly. And the main theme here is that the believers are not to retaliate when they are persecuted. When we are reviled, we are not to respond by reviling back. We are to respond by blessing those who revile us. And to support this ethic of non-retaliation... Peter quotes from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. Christians should respond to hostility by doing good, by seeking peace, by living the good life as God envisions it. We're called to bless our enemies. And in not repaying evil for evil, we obtain a blessing of the Lord's presence 
his care, and his favor. Now let's go to verse 13. So far, pretty clear. The church, household of faith, we're supposed to love each other in the church. If others offend you, if others revile you, don't respond in kind, but respond by blessing them. Then in verse 13, he tells us that if you do good things, if you are zealous for what is good, what harm will come to you? The idea is that if you live a good life, it is likely that things are going to be okay. However, he quickly corrects himself in verse uh, 14, saying that, but even if we suffer, even if things don't go well, even if we suffer, that will still be a blessing to us. Now, verses 15 and 16, calling the unfairly persecuted Christians to be prepared to bear witness to the hope we have in Christ. So instead of being afraid of those who threaten us, we are to honor and worship Christ in our hearts, and out of that experience of Christ as our Lord, we are to speak the truth. We are to share our hope. We are to give and make a defense for the reason that we have this hope in Christ. And by the way, the hope in you, you is plural. This is a communal project. We are supposed to share our hope together with the world. Peter again quotes from, an, or alludes in this case, to another Old Testament passage in Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13, which reads, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So Peter is saying that we are to honor the Lord, and by the way, the Lord is Jesus here. He applies this divine language from the Old Testament to Jesus specifically as our Lord. And as we honor Him, as we worship Him, then we can share our hope with others. Now, please notice that Peter does not advocate withdrawal from unbelievers. He's not saying retreat in the church, treat each other well, love each other, find refuge in the church, and never go out into the world. No, he says, be in the world. Live the way you're supposed to live. Bless and don't retaliate. And when people ask you what's going on with you and why you do that, you share the message of the gospel. You should be free to share, but it should come out of that context of a Christian life. Our words being supported by consistent Christian behavior, by a good conscience, So when the world's reviling of the church happens, it's not justified. However, he says in verse 17, even our most respectful speech, our most loving attitude may still result in suffering. Peter says it's better to suffer unjustly for doing good, if it is God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. In other words, the alternatives of retaliation or compromise to avoid persecution are unacceptable to the Christian. The alternatives of retaliation or compromise to avoid persecution are unacceptable. Okay, now we come to the difficult stretch. Now, Peter calls us to do do good and to bless even if we suffer for it. That's the context of the following verses. It's really important to see the flow and the context. His call is for us to bless even when we suffer for it. 
And now, verses 18 and following, he gives us a Christological motivation and explanation for our suffering for righteousness' sake. So everything that follows is in the context of our unjust suffering. This is supposed to help us. This is supposed to explain why we suffer and how we are to suffer. It presents Christ, whom we are to honor as holy in our hearts, as the one whose suffering resulted in the biggest blessing and who experienced victory and vindication after he himself suffered. So the cross and the resurrection and ascension provide the framework for Christian witness in persecution. Verse 18 reveals the heart of the gospel. Jesus suffered as our substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous, and his suffering in our place for our sins effected our reconciliation with God. He died in the flesh and rose in the spirit. Now I take this to mean that Jesus died in the human, physical, sinful realm and is now alive and rules in the spiritual realm, in the spirit. That doesn't mean his resurrection was not physical. Of course it was physical. He had a body. But his new body is a different kind of body. It's fit for new creation. It's a glorified body. And in this new resurrected state, Jesus went and proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison. Follow the logic. Jesus, our example for suffering, he himself blessed when he was reviled. He himself obtained the blessing of vindication. He's our pattern. And in his resurrected state, in this new glorified body, he preached to the spirits in prison. It does not say he descended. It did not say he went down. It just says he went and he proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison. Okay, who are these imprisoned spirits? Spirits in the Bible most commonly means spiritual beings like angels or demons. So the plain reading, spirits usually means angels. Verse 20 tells us that these spirits were disobedient before the flood in the days of Noah. Now if you go to Genesis 6, you will see that the Lord's judgment on the world by water was prompted by the sons of God forming sexual relationships with the daughters of man. Now, I interpret that very difficult passage. Peter is not helpful. He's given us one obscure passage, connecting it to another obscure passage. <laughs> Presumably, his readers know what he's talking about. More difficult for us today. But in Genesis 6, you have the background for the flood, which is the sons of God having sexual relationships with the women, the daughters of man, and there is a particular kind of wickedness there. And the Lord decides to send a flood. So I take that to mean that there were demon-possessed men taking advantage of human women. It's a particular evil of demonic sexual violence that resulted in the judgment through the flood. Now, after his resurrection... Jesus proclaimed to these spirits, presumably disobedient angels that were imprisoned for a time, what did Jesus tell them? What did he preach to them? I think he preached victory to them. I think he preached that they are judged. 
While the specific example is these demonic beings of Noah's time, I think Peter means a more, much broader proclamation of victory to all rebellious spirits. Now look at verse 22, where Christ is presented as ruling from heaven over all the angels, authorities, and powers. So in his ascension, having proclaimed after his resurrection victory over all evil, now Christ is enthroned as Lord of all, spiritual and physical realms, heaven and earth. Now, Peter is highlighting Christ's victory to encourage the persecuted Christians to persevere in doing good. Eventually, they too will be vindicated because Jesus rules over all, including the people doing evil to the church and the evil powers behind them. And just as the eight persons in Noah's family were saved in the flood, preserved by God, so will all Christ's followers will be saved when the final judgment comes. That's verse 20. Now, all this talk of the flood made Peter think of Christian baptism. In verse 21, this is a common experience of every Christian, and Peter calls his readers to live according to that baptism, according to that experience. He says, baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now remember, he already told us we must have a good conscience when we witness, when we do good in opposition of the world. So baptism is an example of that, is an image of that. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. On the one hand, it's an appeal to be cleansed from our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus. On the other hand, it's an appeal or a pledge to cultivate a good conscience by following Jesus faithfully. I think it works both ways. And when Peter says that baptism now saves you, he doesn't mean that there's something magical about the act itself, because right away he says, it's not like it's just washing your body in the bath. Something else is happening here. If the focus is on the physical act, then the rest of the passage doesn't make sense. But Christian baptism physically expresses the spiritual reality of a new life given to us through Christ, his death, and resurrection. So when we look back on the physical act of baptism, we remember that we are saved by Christ and we live for him. And Peter says, live according to the baptism, even as you are persecuted, even as you suffer unjustly. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that save and the baptism is a visible representation of that, and it becomes a pattern for the rest of the Christian life. We die to sin, and we live for God. Okay. Anyone with me still? This is hard, because this is hard work. You have to connect all these dots, and so if you missed my logical flow, which I would not fault you for that if you did, Go back, read the passage, think through it, and see how everything connects so that it informs your interpretation of these controversial passages. It is notoriously unclear. The most difficult passage in the New Testament, and all the commentaries go in all sorts of directions. So you have to figure out why Peter says these things and how they connect, and then, which is what we're going to do now, then you have to apply it. So I will tell you that whatever interpretation you take, whether Jesus descended to hell to preach 
to the spirits of deceased people or he preached to the angels or whatever interpretation you take on that particular passage. It doesn't affect the five application points I'm going to draw out from this passage. But I think it is important to connect the dots. So do more study if you like. See if there are better explanations than what I gave you. But follow these five application points because they are clear. Okay, so let me work. I won't take much time on each, on each, but we have five to get through. Number one, let the church train you. Let the church train you. I want to make sure we don't overlook the beginning of the passage. Before Peter calls us to bless our opponents and be zealous for what is good, he describes the life of the church. In verse 8, it says, Finally, all of you, all of the believers listening, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is what he tells to the church. The implication is that our experience in the church prepares us for our experience in the world. Where do we learn to bless and, and do good and to seek peace? Where do we learn that? We learn it in the church, but we apply it in the world. When our unbelieving neighbors revile or slander us or just completely misunderstand us, we are to respond with understanding and sympathy and tenderness and humility. All the virtues that we cultivate in our relationships with other believers in the church. Now, do you see the connection? If we revile, slander, divide, deceive, and curse each other in the church, what hope do we have of blessing those who oppose us in the world? The church is the training ground. The church becomes a place, an, an, an economy, a culture, an environment where you learn these virtues, where you learn how to respond to evil. You're being trained. Certain parts of your character are being formed. Now, some people call it a moral ecology, a moral ecology, meaning that it's an environment, it's a culture where Character traits like humility and brotherly love are considered normal, where people are expected to pursue peace and unity, where blessing others is seen as a blessed thing. And if you're part of a moral ecology like the church, you are shaped by it. Your character changes. You are spiritually formed. So then when you are thrown into the world and you encounter evil, you say, I know how to respond to that. I've been trained. I've learned humility. I've learned pursuit of unity. I've learned how to seek peace. Because my brothers and sisters in the church, they taught me. I've worked through conflict in the church, so now I can work through conflict in the world. I have the tools. Now, of course, it's not just the relationships that create a moral ecology. Have you noticed that at least three times in our passage, Peter is quoting or referring to specific Old Testament scriptures? He's quoting from Psalm 34. He's quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from the story of Noah from Genesis 6. And I think he assumes that people know what he's talking about. Because some are direct quotes. Some are allusions. Some are partial quotes. He is counting on the people's knowledge of the Bible. In fact, so much so that we don't understand what he's referring to sometimes. Because he assumes that his people, his readers, know that. 
we may miss it. But I think the important point here is that the Bible has become a common text for both the writer and the reader. It's become something that everybody in the church is familiar with. And so we can all together count on that. So now the Bible becomes a shaping influence on us in the church. And if you are immersed in the life of the church, then the Bible is just a normal thing for you. You always hear scriptures read, preached, taught. You study it on your own. You read it. You memorize it. You meditate on it. That's become part of your moral ecology. And then, of course, there's baptism, which is another piece of creating this kind of culture. Ritual is part of creating a moral ecology, too. Now, when I tell you, if we have a baptism here, which we had a couple Sundays ago, so when we have a baptism, I tell you, the congregation, and tell myself that we ought to live according to our baptism. As we watch somebody get baptized, we remember our baptism and the call is to live according to it. And when I say it, most of us know exactly what I mean. Because we've been baptized, we've been taught about baptism, we've seen many people get baptized in the church. And so when I say live according to your baptism, you think, okay, die to sin, live to God. Die with Christ, rise with Christ. Accept His righteousness, live that righteousness out. I die and I rise with Him. My life is a new life. I walk in the newness of life. All these things come back simply when I say live according to your baptism because we're all part of that ritual. We're all part of a certain understanding, a certain moral ecology. Now the church, and by the church I mean a Christian community like ours, but there are many, many others like us, the church, through its teaching, its ministries, its rituals, its community, should be a training camp for Christians striving to live as elect exiles in the culture that is often hostile to the gospel. It's the church that has the ability to shape us into the kind of people that can bless when they are reviled, who think it's better to suffer for doing good than give in to evil who are prepared to make a defense for a reason for the hope that is in us, who honor Christ in their hearts more than they are afraid of persecution. These people don't just happen, they're formed. But they're formed here in the church. They're shaped in the church. So let the church train you. Commit to be spiritually shaped by the church. And the only way this kind of influence works is if you immerse yourself in the life of the church for a long period of time. If you have the mentality of, I'm just going to come and have an amazing experience, and that will change me forever, that's not how God usually works. Yes, He sometimes works through dramatic experiences, no question. But in general, we grow gradually over time our character is being pruned and shaped and, and formed and, and it grows and it adjusts. So it's immersion in the church for a long period of time. And the church should be your primary shaping and training community. Not the only one, but the primary one. It's not that you should only be in the church 
and nowhere else. No, God calls you to be in all sorts of other realms of life. You should have meaningful careers. You should have a household. You should have other things in life. But the church is the primary shaping and training community. Not social media. Not a community of unbelievers. Not college. All those things have their place. But if they have become shaping influences, if they have become training communities for you, you're not going to do well in the church or in the world. To let the church train you. Secondly, let the good triumph. Let the good triumph. This is verse 13. Peter calls us to be zealous for what is good. Zealous. It's a great biblical word. Be zealous. Don't be half-hearted. Don't just go along. Be zealous. Completely commit yourself to what is good. Now in verse 9, he tells us that we are called to bless even when evil is done to us. Even unjust suffering doesn't give us license to retaliate, to repay evil with evil, to stop doing good. The Christian life demands an uncompromising commitment to the good. In faith, in confidence, in expectation that good will triumph, however bleak our conditions may look at the moment. Now, this teaching of not giving into evil, not repaying evil for evil, has been neglected in the church. Somehow, I'm not sure how it happened, but the church is probably at fault there somewhere, other factors, but somehow many professing Christians have decided it's okay to revile when they are reviled, to curse when they are cursed, to hate their enemies, to mock those who mock them, to refuse to see God's image in their opponents. That seems to have become the norm in the way that Christians now interact with the world and our culture. But that is not a biblical norm. What are we called to? Now, you already know what Peter says. Bless, right? Don't retaliate. Don't return evil with evil. Peter is very clear on that. But Peter is simply following Jesus' teachings. That's all he's doing. He's not inventing a new ethic. He's simply reiterating what Jesus had already said. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Same language as Peter. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It doesn't say be angry, be outraged. It says rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Luke 6, 27, 28. But I say to you, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, how seriously do you take these verses? They're abundant in Scripture. There's no question that the biblical ethic when we are persecuted is not to retaliate. That doesn't mean we don't stand up to evil. 
That doesn't mean we don't say anything, but it does mean that we don't return evil for evil. We don't revile. We don't humiliate. We don't put people down. We don't hate our enemies. That's very clear in Scripture. Do you think it applies to us today? Or do you think our culture today is more wicked or more hostile than the culture of Peter's day? You really think so? We have to commit to the ethic of Jesus, not to any other ethic we've devised based on our circumstances. Not giving into temptation to retaliate, to unleash our fury on someone, to destroy our opponents on social media, to humiliate and hate. Our refusal to do that is serving Christ who himself willingly suffered for us. We cannot promote Christ, and that is our task as his disciples is to promote him, but we cannot promote Christ by unchristlike behavior. It is illogical. It is unreasonable to think that we can achieve the goals of Christ by using unchristlike means. There's a story that is told about a Christian who enlisted and was in the barracks and everybody else mocked his faith. He would go to bed at night and he would pray, he would read his Bible. He was respectful, but he was reviled. And one particular soldier would always make fun of him, would always scoff at him, would always mock him. What should that Christian soldier do? Should he get up, take a swing at him? What should he do? Well, that particular soldier, one night when his opponent was particularly vicious to him, ended up just throwing his muddy boots at him at the end of the night, got up in the middle of the night, cleaned and shined his boots, ready for inspection the next morning. Do you think that is more powerful than taking a swing at him? I think so. Do you think refusal to retaliate, refusal to return evil for evil is more powerful than do it quid, for, quid pro quo? Let me share another story with you. Um, in August of 1985, Christianity Today published an article written by a Harvard psychiatrist. Uh, his name is Robert Coles who was mystified by a six-year-old's faith. And it was titled, The Inexplicable Prayers of Ruby Bridges. Now, I first uh, learned about Ruby Bridges when my daughter, Polina, uh, did a presentation uh, during Black History Month at McNair. Uh, that was my first introduction to that part of your history, which is both encouraging, exciting, and deeply distressing. Coles, the psychiatrist, recalls his conversations with Ruby Bridges, a six-year-old black girl who attended the newly desegregated school in New Orleans in the fall of 1960, several years after uh, the Supreme Court decision. Finally, those things started happening in New Orleans, and all the white parents pulled their kids out of school in protest that a black child was going to go and study at their school. Ruby was the only child taught in that school by one teacher that whole year. Nobody else showed up. 
no other white kids came. But every morning, when Ruby went to school, and every afternoon when she left, she was escorted by federal marshals, and she was yelled at by white parents of that school. Sometimes the insults were unimaginable. The six-year-old child, every day, morning, afternoon, was experiencing that kind of verbal abuse every day. Well, this psychiatrist, this Harvard psychiatrist, who was studying trauma in children, social trauma in children, he thought, I'm going to go and find out how this girl, how this little child is dealing with this. It must be incredibly traumatic for her and for her family. So he went, got to know the family. First, he talked to the parents and says, how is Ruby doing? They're, they're saying, I think she's doing fine. And he said, well, is she sleeping? Yeah, sleep. is she eating? She's eating. Does she exhibit any, any symptoms of stress? They're like, we don't think so. So he's thinking, well, they're probably suppressing it in some way. They're probably not seeing the signs. So he talked to Ruby's teacher. How is Ruby doing? She's doing fine. She seems to be okay. Then he talked to Ruby. Ruby, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Then he did the psychiatrist trick. Draw a picture for me, you know. No monsters in that picture. Everything seems to be okay. And then he overheard the teacher, or the teacher told him, you know, I saw Ruby kind of mumble to herself when, when, she, when she comes to school in the morning, and I'm wondering who she's talking to. Could it be that that's how she's working out stress in her life? Could it be that there's some delusion or something is, is happening there? So the psychiatrist talked to Ruby and said, Ruby, your teacher noticed that you were talking to someone, but nobody was, was there. Who were you talking to? She's like, oh, I wasn't talking. What were you doing? I was praying. Who were you you praying for? I I was praying for all the people around me, all the people that are yelling at me. And he said, but why are you praying for them? She said, well, because they need praying for. (laughs) Why are you praying for them? She said, because I should. Well, turns out that's what her parents prayed for. That's what her pastor at church every Sunday prayed for those who are persecuting her. And having grown up in that moral ecology, Ruby necessarily started praying for people herself. Do you know what she was praying? She was praying, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Where does that phrase come from? From the Bible. This is what Jesus prayed as he was being put on the cross and put to death unjustly for the sins of the world. Now, I think Ruby's story needs to be much more widely known, not because of, only because of her role in the civil rights movement, but also because it's a Christian role. She was a Christian in that situation. And she was actually doing what Christians are supposed to do. There were other Christians on the other side that were not doing what Christians were supposed to do. But she was. To the puzzlement of the psychiatrist, couldn't figure out how a kid like that could handle a situation like that so well. Peter says, what harm can come to you if you continue to be zealous for what is good? I think at least part of what he means is that it's better to do good even if you suffer because God will help you. Because God will supply grace for you as he did to little Ruby Bridges. What can you lose if you refuse to return evil to evil. Augustine said, 
If you love the good, you will suffer no loss because whatever you may be deprived of in this world, you will never lose God, who is the true good. Number three, let the hope turn heads. Let, let the hope turn heads. As you suffer unjustly and respond with love to those who persecute you, some heads will turn and take notice. Some people will ask for the reason that you are doing that. And you will get a chance to tell them about the hope you have in Jesus. We are called to bless others. One commentator says, but what is blessing? Surely it's not just saying soothing things or mouthing vaguely, may the Lord bless you. It must rather be a case of offering the gospel with its promises of divine blessings to persecutors so that they have the chance to respond to it and actually receive the blessings. So are you prepared to bless people by offering the gospel to them, even those who are mean to you, even those who revile you, even those who slander you, even those who hurt you? Verse 15 tells us how we can prepare to do that. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We prepare to speak about Jesus by honoring Jesus in our hearts and lives. If we see Jesus as holy, if we worship Him as Lord, if we love Him as Savior, then of course, of course, we'll have lots of things to say about Him to others who ask us. Our main problem with evangelism let me put myself in here. My main problem with evangelism is not lack of theological knowledge or practical training. As helpful as those things may be. Our main problem, my main problem, is not honoring Christ the Lord as holy in my heart. Because if I do that, that is my hope. That becomes the reason why I suffer the way I suffer. And it does turn heads. And by the way, if we honor Christ in our hearts, our evangelism will be marked by gentleness and respect. And our evangelism will be supported by a clear conscience and good behavior. It will be consistent. Are you prepared to explain your hope to someone? Are you confident that your life is so different, it's so Christ-like, that others must be curious about the reason for your hope? Number four, let the gospel teach you. Let the gospel teach you. What defines how we live? According to Peter, it should be the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about Jesus, about who he is, what, what he came to do, which is to give himself for us so we can give ourselves to God. Now verse 18 gives us the heart of the gospel. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered. Jesus died, not for his sins. He was sinless, but for our sins. He's righteous, but we are unrighteous. And yet it is he who died for us. 
His death was a substitution. And you cannot understand Christianity unless you grasp this idea of substitution. His suffering was in our place. He died instead of us. And that suffering brought a blessing. Remember, Peter's saying that when we suffer, we bless others. There's blessing in our suffering that goes to others. And we also obtain a blessing as we suffer unjustly. Well, Jesus' suffering brought a blessing to the world. So our suffering, too, can bless others. Anyone who believes that on the cross Jesus took their sin upon himself and gave his righteousness to them by grace is reconciled to God, is at peace with God. God's judgment no longer applies to us because it was applied to Jesus. And if his suffering reconciled us to God, it follows that our suffering can introduce others to the gospel and offer all the blessings earned by Christ to them. There's another aspect here. Not only are we called to bless, but we're called to obtain a blessing, verse 9. Now this too is shaped by the gospel. What blessing did Jesus obtain? He was vindicated in his resurrection and exalted over all his enemies and angels and authorities and powers in his ascension. That's his blessing. By suffering unjustly and by blessing others, by bringing a blessing to others, he also obtained a blessing of vindication and exaltation. So what blessing do we obtain? We too will be vindicated in our resurrection. And we too will be exalted as we rule with Christ in eternity. And our unjust suffering now, our life intention with the world now, our zeal for what is good, our refusal to retaliate is proof that we have God's favor. It's proof that we are obtaining His blessing. And we will receive everything he promised when Jesus returns. Karen Job says, Suffering unjustly for doing good is evidence that one is on the right side of the eschatological divide. Unjust suffering for doing good, as God defines good, means that one is living out of that pledge to God, taken in baptism for a lifetime, devoted to serving him. As you serve him, as you continue to live according to your baptism, you're actually proving that you are in God's favor. As you suffer unjustly, that places you and proves to you and others that you are on the other side of this eschatological divide. When judgment comes, you will be vindicated and you will be exalted because of Jesus. So as you look at your life today, is it framed? Is it shaped? Is it controlled by the gospel of the suffering and exalted Jesus? Does your life now show on which side of the eschatological divide you are? In other words, are you with Jesus, living out his own pattern of suffering and vindication, the cross and the empty tomb? And finally, and very briefly, let the Lord take care of you. Let the Lord take care of you. Let's not miss the encouragement in the story of Noah that Peter refers to. He says that in the ark, eight persons were brought safely through the flood in verse 20. 
this world will be judged. But you will be okay if you are in Christ. One church father said, The present is evil, but the future is bright. We should always remember that. As Noah's family was safe in the ark, so are you safe in Jesus. No matter how difficult things are, and for some of you things are really difficult right now, no matter how dark it seems right now for you, and for some of you it seems very dark, no matter how tough it is to resist temptation, and for some of you it's very hard, no matter how hard the world is pressing against you, Jesus is Lord. He will prevail, and you will prevail with him.